Hey there, and welcome to another episode of my podcast. I am Father Roderick, podcasting from the heart of the Netherlands, the beautiful city of Amersfoort, where the weather is amazing. I mean, it's almost summer. It's crazy. It's not even March yet. Uh, global warming. You gotta love it. <laughs> This episode is brought to you advertisement-free thanks to my patrons. If you want to join them and help me produce the the, the the stuff that I do, then join them over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. This past week was, of course, the week of the big summit in the Vatican. More than 190 participants from all over the world, bishops, priests, experts, cardinals, uh, together with Pope Francis, to tackle one of the biggest crises, perhaps the biggest crisis since the the Reformation, the Protestant uh, Reformation, which is, uh, of course, the worldwide plague of abuse, especially the abuse of minors. And uh, for four days, uh, these participants have been talking together, reflecting, praying together, um, uh, and every day had a specific theme. And then on the final day on Sunday, this past Sunday, uh, the Pope gave his closing remarks and there was a press conference announcing the next steps because, of course, this was just one of the steps, a very important, a very visible one. I mean, there were thousands of reporters uh, from all over the world gathered in Rome to report on this uh, crisis and on on, uh, the event. But, of course, it's impossible to uh, to fix the situation in four days. This is a major crisis that that also I think touches upon the the well the foundations of of what we are as a church and how we act and how we are supposed to to deal with uh, with sin in the midst of uh, our our attempts to follow Jesus. And so um, the I'm, I was very glad to hear that there will be. More, uh, uh, more specific guidelines, uh, more, more steps, and perhaps even a follow-up meeting. Um, and I think that is a that is a very, very important thing to communicate right from the start. To uh, not to downplay the expectations, because I I think that the world uh, is very um, right, rightfully asks for very concrete steps. Even Pope Francis, at the start of the entire meeting, has said that that we need to become as, as specific as possible. This is not, it's a time to exchange ideas is over, but um, those steps, of course, cannot all be taken uh, in these four days. And I think that would even be dangerous because then it would be like, oh, we dealt with the question, let's move on. Well, we can't move on. There, there's way too much happening and there's way too much at stake here. And let's not forget the, the victims themselves. They, they can't move on like that, just turn a page and, well, let's do something else. This is something that we need to take seriously um, uh, and 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 we need to take all the time that is needed to tackle this problem, to help the victims and to make sure that whatever we do uh, is is preventing this as much as is humanly possible. Last week was also, for me, a week to uh, spend in France and no, I have not been there physically, but I was there 
mentally, definitely. I worked on a TV episode about uh, uh, a couple of weeks that I spent in the south of France, in the Pyrenees, helping out parishes there. Uh, it's a region where they have almost no vocations, almost no priests, and priests that are still working there are all very old. And uh, a number of years ago, I went there on vacation with uh, three other priests that I know very well, Father Henry, Father Harry, Father Michel. And uh, the bishop, the local bishop, asked us to um, cater to all these small villages and um, to celebrate Mass as much as we could, um, but also take part in the social life of those parishes, which which we did. And I was very mm, almost, almost forward-looking in filming uh, those experiences. I think back then I, I created a few vlogs, but it, that was really in the early days of vlogging. And um, a, a lot of that material, I never really looked at it again. Um, but last week I... I created a story with those images and it was just great to be back in France and to to see myself also years ago in a very different time in my life um not that I've changed that much at least I've gone a little bit grayer that's <laughs> so I'm a little bit older but it's still me but but it's a it's a totally different lifestyle as a priest to live there in the south of France and and uh, we uh, we had a lot of great experiences also some difficult ones, um, and it made me aware of how how valuable these these times are that I can step away from my day to day life and also the kind of the grind of media production which I'm currently still f- facing and trying to tackle it's almost over. We got to produce two more episodes uh, for my TV show, and and when once that is finished, I'll have more time to to do other things, and perhaps it's also time for me to step away and and take a, a leave of absence for a couple of days, because those experiences in other countries help me to to relativize things that I that I go through here. It also gives me a lot of new ideas. And traveling in that respect has always been extremely fruitful for me and, and beneficial uh, because well sometimes you just have to step out of your of your day-to-day situation to get some new ideas and to, to experiment with other lifestyles or other you know rhythm of life. And what I what I appreciated about the time in France, and of course afterwards I, I went back to France for uh, for the Camino, or at least the first part of the Camino. What I liked about it, it was this general slowdown that I realized that uh, I'm my life as a priest is valuable not because of the amount of work that I do, <laughs> let alone the amount of podcasts and TV shows that I produce. That that is totally secondary. But what really matters for me is to to be a priest, to be a pastor, to to have a heart that is open for for what God wants me to do, for the people that I meet, and the 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 quantity is not important; it's the quality. And sometimes in my current day to day life, the quantity the the quantity tops the quality, and even endangers the quality of what I do. Uh, I talk a little bit about more uh, more about that and the choices that I've that I've recently made. Uh, when it comes to my my media work in this week's episode of The Walk. So go check that out over at tridio.com where I post all those uh, more kind of more pensive, reflective, 
what is it, more meditative uh, uh, podcast episodes uh, of The Walk. Let's take a look at the world of movies and TV shows. And uh, this time I, I got a number of shows and, and TV shows that I want to review and also a movie that I recently watched. Yes, I actually found some time in my busy schedule to go to the movies. Ah, it was great. I fell asleep. <laughs> That's how tired I was. But only for a couple of minutes. And then I woke up and I was like... <gasps> How long have I been sleeping? Have I been snoring? Because there were people, sits, people sitting in front of me and behind me. But uh, I think I caught most of the movie. <laughs> I do not like movies. They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. Today's background in the studio, by the way, is a, is a whole bunch of uh, translucent umbrellas in beautiful, bright springtime colors. You've got red and purple and orange and, and yellow uh, and even a pink umbrella and a black one. The black one's probably I, – I, I couldn't find a nice picture with only black umbrellas, but that would be the most fitting for the, the TV show that I want to review at the start of this movie's TV segment. And that is the new show on Netflix, The Umbrella Academy. Um, as you know, Netflix has been canceling a lot of their superhero series. Um, basically, everything that's related to Marvel, they – stopped producing. There is one last season of Jessica Jones that we will get, and all the other shows have been canceled. This, of course, is uh, in relation to the developments over at Disney. They are going to launch their subscription service, their online streaming platform, and, of course, Disney owns Marvel, so it makes sense. It's probably also a money-saving uh, uh, decision of, of Netflix, because if they would continue to produce these Marvel shows, they would be help, helping, basically, Marvel and, therefore, Disney, their biggest competitor in the near future. Um, and at the same time, they'd probably have to pay huge fees for the licenses of those uh, comic book characters. And so it makes sense that uh, that Netflix is looking in different directions to still continue to cater to the uh, ongoing demand for superhero-based uh, shows. But without sponsoring Disney or Marvel. And so the the Umbrella Academy is the latest uh, series that is kind of in the realm of the comic book superhero genre, but it's a different take. And it has a lot of things in common, I think, with the style, the gritty style of, of uh, series like Daredevil and, and Jessica Jones. But it's a little bit, it's still different. It's, it's more, it's funnier, I think. It's... Uh, um, it's it's very well executed. So, so just to summarize, this is based on a comics comic book series. I'm not sure about the publisher. Um, uh, th that's also called the Umbrella Academy. And in a lot of the promotional material, you saw this photo of a bunch of school kids, basically teenagers, wearing these kind of classic black masks, eye masks, very reminiscent of the masks uh, that you see in um, uh, the Incredibles uh, movies. And the thing is, the 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 trailer, if you've seen the trailer for, for the series, starts with that when the kids are still that age. And they are apparently um, kind of miraculous births. I mean, the, all their mothers uh, one day were all of a sudden pregnant. They hadn't been pregnant and they give birth on on, on a day, whereas they wake, wake up, they start the, the day not being pregnant, and then the, in the, the course of the day, they uh, 
they get a child. And then there is this strange kind of, uh, almost looks like a Tintin-esque character, a, a kind of a professor-like uh, guy with a, uh, an eye, uh, what is it? Um, uh, in French, they would call it a lorgnette, so an uh, eyeglass. Um, he's got this this beautiful mustache, but he's also a very strange kind of, it looks like a very, very strict uh, uh, guy. And he adopts all those children, or he tries to adopt all those children that have that were born like that. They're actually, he only succeeds to adopt about six or seven or eight of them. Um, and we don't know exactly. I've only I've not seen the entire first season yet, so uh, I, I may be missing some some pieces of uh, of information. He raises them, and then all of a sudden, the series actually takes place today. These kids have grown up. They all have kind of separated and live their own lives, and fate brings them back. Actually, it's the death of their father. That's not a real spoiler. Brings them back together, and then it turns out that there is a lot going on, and there's some 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 killer guys or a killer couple that is that is trying to exterminate, ex- especially one of the one of the members of that family, and uh, and that's kind of the, what I've seen so far. Um, there's time travel. There are some actually not very modest superhero powers that we that we see. There's there's quite a bit of fighting, and a lot of the choreography reminds me of the of the Daredevil type of choreography that's very well executed. It's um it's bloody sometimes, but it's not over the top. It's more choreography than uh, than just gore. Um, and you know that I don't really care for too much violence. Um, so, and and all in all. What I like about the Umbrella Academy is, first of all, the mystery. You don't really know what's going on. What's the backstory of these kids? Why were they adopted? What's the deal with their father? Um, why are they being haunted right now or, or hunted? I should say not haunted, hun- hunted by by uh, this couple. Um, and where's this story going to lead? But what I like most is um, you really care for these characters. They're very different. They all have a backstory that slowly unfolds, and they all have a certain likability. Even the 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 the, per, the person, the characters that are not very likable, but you still want to know more about them. And their interaction is 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 a bit of it's it's a dysfunctional family, and that's a new concept that I've never seen in, in the superhero genre before, except for perhaps the Avengers that. For more or less a bit of a family, but it's 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 kind of more of a pretext to get well to get basically a bunch of superheroes together to fight, uh, like I explained in uh, or actually Luis Escobar explained uh, last in last week's shows show, but uh, the Umbrella Academy is is actually a real family, of course, of adopted children, but it, the family aspect is is even more more predominant in in this uh, in this story. What I really like about it, it is not, I mean, it's it's gritty, but it's not dark. It's not dark, dark. There's always a bit of a, um, a levity to to each episode. And visually, this is a big, big departure from the superhero genre that we've seen, at least on television, in the sense that it's very colorful and uh, uh, it... it it's very cinematic. These uh, cinematography is great. Special effects are great. Choreography is great. The acting is great, and there is a lot of there's a lot of um, let's say um, the the pacing is very good. There is high intensity action. 
there is intrigue, there is mythology, but there's there's also there are a lot of room for these personal moments and 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 I don't know, just everything feels so right about this series, and I enjoy what I've seen. I've th- I think I've seen four or five episodes right now, and I really this is my right now my favorite Netflix series that I'm watching. So check it out. It's not for kids. I'll say that right away. This is not Spider-Man, but it is. It's really, really good. Then a movie review, Alita Battle Angel, also based on, a, well, not on a comic book series, but on a manga uh, animated series, I think, or perhaps even also a comic book series. I'm not sure. Um, and Alita Battle Angel is actually perhaps the pet project uh, of James Cameron. Uh, even before he made... Um, well, I'm not sure about Titanic, but definitely before he made Avatar, he wanted to make Alita Battle Angel. Um, it's the story of a of a well, a girl. You could say a girl, but it's actually a, an android. So she has a human brain, but her body is robotic, and she is patch, patched together by this man who um, once had a daughter. His daughter died, um, but he wanted to save his daughter years ago and so created kind of an artificial body um, and since then he's been trying to find well actually a substitute daughter that's how I would say and, and one day on a, on a scrapyard there, there's actually there's this, this underworld and this upper world the, 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 the privileged people live in this this kind of floating world kind of reminiscent of, of Wally where, where the privileged people lived on a spaceship above the the planet and the rest of the earth is one big scrapyard it's not as 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 uh, cartoonish as in wally but it's the same idea perhaps wally even even uh, uh, took that from from elite from the alita original alita series um so so a lot of humans live on on earth and are not allowed to go to this kind of flying saucer spaceship thing where where life is, uh, supposedly is, is is very very good um, and that ideal world, they dump their garbage basically on on the planet Earth. And so one day, this this man finds uh, this spine with a head attached to it, and inside the head, the head itself is also uh, uh, a robotic. On the inside is a human brain of a of a woman, and so he transplants that brain and the head on top of of this robotic uh, body. And then Alita awakes. That's a, he, he names her Alita. That was the name of her daughter. And very quickly, it's it turns out that that, that there this 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 Alita is there is much more to this girl, and she's actually a fighting machine. And she has these sometimes these souvenirs, these memories of of her time in a different different world and a different you know fighting and then she's very good at fighting etc that's kind of the, the the backstory there's much more to the to the backstory i think of alita and and of this whole world building that takes place but not everything is shown in this movie uh, at the end of the movie which i tremendously enjoyed it's not as deep as some other movies i mean it's still um what I say, it's I mean, it's a it's a good story, likable characters, great action, special effects are are amazing. Uh, I mean, the the they did a lot with motion capture. That was one of the reasons that that uh, Cameron couldn't make this movie before. Avatar was still an entire what we saw there, the the blue aliens. That's all digital, 
And in a certain way, it's easier to get away with it. But what they did with Alita Battle Angel is that almost everything you see, the sets are real. A lot of the actors are real. And the character of, of Alita, the Battle Angel, she is entirely CGI. But based, she's played by an actress. And everything is motion captured. Her face or her performance is motion. But the entire body is replaced. You can still tell there's a little bit of uncanny valley there, especially she's got these huge non-human eyes almost. Uh, but but it's it's a, a little bit of a mix. Some of the scenes are you you totally believe that this is a real person in a real uh, you know part of the of the of the of the the environment of the set with the other actors. There are also some of a bit of the lighting. Sometimes the colors are sometimes a bit off, where you can tell mm, this is CGI. But it is, I mean, this is this is so good, so good. And what I like, actually, what I like about it is after a few minutes, you forget that it's CGI and you're t- totally, you know, taken in by the story. Yes, I did feel fall asleep <laughs> at one point. I think it was probably during a fight for a very brief moment. But on the whole, very enjoyable movie. I saw it in 2D, although this is probably going to be very good in 3D as well. Cameron is... After all, one of the masters of 3D, um, especially Avatar, he he made that entire movie to be a showcase for what three for the kind of experience that 3D could give you, and it would really enhance the experience, not just a gimmick that's stacked on to to be able to rise the, the ticket prices, and that's usually how 3D is used. Um, so at the end of the movie, you want to see more. I want to see a sequel to this. I want to know what's going on. Uh, in that respect, it feels a little bit like the end of um, uh, the um, oh, what's it called the 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 the, the, uh, the machines that the, um, oh Lord um, <laughs> the the movie that I reviewed a couple of weeks ago uh, with the uh, moving cities uh, I already forgot it anyway it's uh, that too is produced by Weta and uh, the special effects in this movie of Alita. Battle Angel also done by Weta Studios, and, and there there are a lot of similarities um, between the two movies. That movie too ended with an open end. It's like I want to know more of this world, but that was a box office failure, and I don't think we'll ever see the the, the future of that. So um, hopefully, with with Alita Battle Angel, we'll we'll be successful enough to see a sequel. Although I wonder if Cameron is going to have time enough because he's, as you know, working on his many sequels to Avatar. Uh, by the way, there is a fascinating podcast that I want to recommend. Do you know the Empire movie podcast? Look it up in your podcast uh, software. Empire, and they did a special, like a documentary about Cameron. And he explains, he ta- he talks about why he only now was able to make Alita. There are also some 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 parts of interviews that he made that he did years ago. It's a fascinating, great great episode. So check it out, Empire podcast. Empire Magazine is a is a well known science fiction movie uh, magazine in over in the UK, um, but they have also an excellent excellent podcast which is very entertaining, especially their spoiler filled movie reviews and discussions. They they are always because they're such a big budget you know very well known uh, uh, magazine movie magazine. They get to speak to all these actors and 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 directors. It's a really great film podcast so check that out so i'm not sure when we will see a sequel to alita battle angels but but, but i do believe that it merits to, to i enjoyed the movie uh, quite a bit then of course we got the oscars 
the uh, Academy Awards. Um, just I'm recording this on a Monday. It happened uh, over the weekend, um, and and um, I was happy to see that the Green Book got the Best Movie Award uh, with Viggo Mortensen, of course. Hey. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> Aragorn, can't go wrong with that. So uh, that was, uh, I think, I haven't seen the movie yet, but very well deserved, I've heard from many people. And then, of course, uh, Ramek got the Oscar for Best Actor in, in um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and, and th- that movie got a lot of Oscars. Um, well deserved. It's an excellent movie. It's, it's great. I want to see it again, <laughs> but don't have the time. Um, and uh, there were a lot of other Academy Awards for movies that I haven't seen yet. Uh, of course, Star is Born, uh, Lady Gaga. She got an uh, an Oscar for her for the song, kind of the like the 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 the, the, the token song for that movie. That's one one of the movies. That, unfortunately, I miss in theaters, but will definitely be on my list. And then, of course, you remember a couple of weeks ago that I raved about Roma and how much I thought that that was a masterpiece. Well, three Oscars. It's a Netflix production. I mean, I never thought we'd see the day that that actually a streaming platform would take home three Oscars. And the, the, this is a movie that would never be financed for, for uh, theaters. It would have flopped because nobody would 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 uh, dare to invest in such a a non box office type of of of, uh, of production, and yet it is a masterpiece that goes is on par or even superior to a lot of the classic movies of the '60s. Um, a brilliant masterpiece, and it got the Oscars for all the right reasons for direction cinematography and one other one screenplay perhaps i don't know but if you haven't seen it yet and you have a subscription to netflix do yourself a favor and watch it and 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 open your mind this is not a movie for everyone it's not a popcorn movie but this is great movie making this is a type of movie that i thought we would never see again it's an art that I thought was extinct. And thanks to Netflix and thanks to the exposure now by the Academy Awards, I can I totally hope that we will get to see more of these masterpieces. This is this is storytelling at its best. All right, enough about that. And then finally, already kind of mentioned Lord of the Rings with uh, you know Viggo Mortensen getting another Oscar for his performance in. Yeah, I think he got an Oscar. Did he, did he get an Oscar for, for his role? Actually, now I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. But the movie got an Oscar, uh, which is also partially due to his uh, his contribution. But you all know that um, uh, Amazon Prime is working on a new series based on The Lord of the Rings. They got, they got in touch with the Tolkien estate, got the rights, and are now in pre-production. And well, lo and behold, much earlier than I expected, the marketing machine has started to give hints. And the first thing they did was actually based on a quote from Tolkien. So that's a very good sign. Tolkien at one point in his life and in his letters, I don't know where, said, I wish I'd started with a map. When when Tolkien, of course, kind of stumbled into the world of Middle-earth by telling a a children's story to his own children. And it's later on that he started to develop the Lord of the Rings and the backstories that are uh, uh, gathered in, in the Silmarillion. 
And maps are vital to, uh, to, to if, if the story gets more and more complex, you need to have a good map to know what happens where and how it all relates to each other. That's why at the start of every episode of uh, Game of Thrones, you'll see this this 3D map and it helps you to understand where is the wall, where, where is, you know, where are all these different countries where things take place. And um, I've got a big map actually at home, uh, which I framed of, of the world of uh, Game of Thrones because I, I've not finished watching the, the seasons. And it helps me to figure out, well, oh, wait a minute, but that's the Dothraki is so far away from, from Winterfell, etc. It, it, it really helps me understand the, the story. And Tolkien, so Tolkien said at one point said, I wish I'd started with a map. And the map that Bilbo draws after his adventures with Smaug uh, and and uh, the, the 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 dwarves draws a map, and then later on the map that is made for Lotro is uh, Lord of the Rings is of course much much bigger, and and uh, the map that Bilbo uh, made is only a, f- a small section of of what of the entire world of Middle Earth that we start to discover later on. And so, what what did they do for Amazon? What did Amazon do for to to start marketing this Lord of the Ring based television series? I think more than three, definitely three seasons. They start with a map. There is a a map, a beautiful map. I love the colors. I I want to have a poster of that map. And every day they add new details to that map. There will be a link in the show notes, um, and you you can check it out for yourself. You can zoom in on that map. It's really well done. And it's intriguing. Inga noticed this right away. There are some names on the map that predate the time frame of the Lord of the Rings. It predates the events of The Hobbit. Is that a clue that the series itself will also predate the events in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings? We heard that, that the series may focus on the younger years of Aragorn. But then again, you get to... You wonder if that is covered by this license that is actually tied to the stories of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. You can't go beyond that. The Tolkien estate has never given permission to do anything out of, outside of that, th- those time frames because those were the only rights that Tolkien sold. At one point, he was strapped for cash. He wanted to give his kids a, a good e- education, so he sold the rights to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and, and basically the, the timeline surrounding those events. Uh, and he regretted it ever since. And Christopher Tolkien, his son, uh, kind of always swore that he would never, ever give any license to any media company or filmmaker or whatever for any other story. So it's only publishers that have been able to publish the stories as is. But what if this timeline predates The Hobbit? How, how is that even possible? I know we know that they have been in talks with the Tolkien estate, so perhaps the Tolkien estate has given them some some more margin in there. Uh, I don't know. It's it's very intriguing, but also very exciting because if we leave the time frame of the Hobbit, if we if we go back in time, those stories have never been shown. What we get into unknown territory, which also means that there is more of a creative license the creative room for the makers of this new series to to do something different it's kind of a little bit what star trek does now with discovery they go beyond they go they venture into a world into a time 
that we have never seen before. And that is what makes it so valuable and such a great addition to the material that's already there. So I, I like that approach much more than just doing side stories. You know, I, I don't think this series would be a success if we would only see, well, this is what, while Frodo was doing this and that, we are going to tell this totally not important story because we, there's nothing more important than what happens to the ring and with Frodo, all the rest is not worth telling and basically. But if, it, if, if they show how, 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 how the world became as it is at the start of The Hobbit, then that is an investment that I want to make. I want to see how the world became what it is at the start of The Hobbit because then it is a complement to what we already have instead of just being redundant, you know, a bit of marginal storytelling. So I couldn't be more excited. And that's about what I wanted to share with you on the level of movies and TV shows. Let's visit The Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at The Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to share everything concerning, not hobbits, but Catholics. <laughs> Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And while I'm recording uh, this segment, I'm, I'm, I have such an itchy nose. <laughs> Too much information, perhaps, but it springs in the air, and it, and it messes up my sinuses. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Just as an aside, for the past few uh, days, I've, I've been uh, kind of struggling with uh, the, the, the remnants of uh, bronchitis or starting bronchitis or something like that. It's, it's a cold that I've had a couple of weeks ago, and my lungs get into trouble. And the moment I, I uh, um, uh, the moment I, I force myself to put energy in things, it's it, my somehow my entire body starts to protest. And I think this is part of it. I've been doing a lot of coughing. I'm actually suppressing this this cough, which is linked to my bronchi being very sensitive. And now my nose is starting to itch. And I think it must be because, uh, because of the warm weather here in the Netherlands, the trees are starting to blossom. And, uh, and there's just this, 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 fairy dust in the air that makes me sneeze. So my apologies for um, for the people that are watching this on video. Uh, that It's not a very pretty sight to see me constantly, you know, like, my nose is itching so much. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, of course, in this during this segment, we have to talk a little bit more about what's happening in the Vatican and um, the summit and, and where will this take us? I've, I've been following more or less as, as much as I could find time what was happening in the Vatican. Um, and uh, none of it was, was super shocking or a revelation or a revolution that has disappointed a lot of people. It's of course, super high expectations, rightfully so, as I mentioned at the start of this, uh, this show. Um, uh, there were a number of things that struck me. First of all, the 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 courage of some of the participants to to be frank and to almost confess how much they mishandled uh, abuse in the past. Um, there was this uh, Cardinal Marx from from Germany who actually admitted that dossiers had been destroyed of priests that have had abused people, um, and so. Basically, acknowledging a cover-up, 
and of course, he didn't mention any numbers or the scale, but the fact that he acknowledged that there had been a cover-up and that it, it got as far as the destruction of the chaise, that that is ventures into, you know, uh, uh, punishable, uh, uh, you know, crime territory. That is that is very very serious business. But I appreciate it that he wanted to that he mentioned it. I hope that there will be huh, a little bit more honesty. Okay, which cases? Which priests? I'm, I, we need to get to the bottom of this, or. Well, at least I'm not sure if we should get to the bottom. If this is another observation that I had in the Netherlands, the way we tackled this entire crisis was that we, our bishops, asked a, an external committee of experts to conduct a, 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 a very long uh, inquiry into what happened in the Netherlands for the past 50 years. They went back in time a lot. But that entire committee, it was paid for by the church, but it was completely independent of any influence by the bishops. And their final report was devastating, devastating for for the church today, but also for, you know, generations of priests and bishops that preceded, that kind of led up to, to, to the, the, the crisis or were part of the crisis. And so, but I, I, it was very, very hard to to read that report. It was seven hundred six, more. It was a thousand pages. It was a huge volume, and they uncovered thousands of of abuse cases, uh, and and mismanagement and cover ups for for decades. But I think it was the right and the only right thing to do, and what I want. But who am I to put this on a wish list? But what I think is absolutely vital is that the church in in the the global church, the Vatican perhaps to start with, does the same. An internal investigation by people of the members of the curia is no longer credible because too much too many people inside the Vatican are compromised. And uh so that will never lead to the truth. You need to have a, a, an external investigative uh, a group of people, of experts, that are not influenced at all in their inquiry, that they need to open up everything for that investigation. That's the only way to get to the bottom. And no one should be exempt, not even the Pope. It's the only way to restore credibility. It's, it's the truth will set you free and nothing but the truth. Jesus is the truth. So if you want to take your faith in Jesus seriously, you need not be afraid of the truth and you need to allow the truth to appear. The reason that I, that I stress this so much is because I've been reading uh, Martel's book, the very controversial but also shocking Bestseller, uh, Sodoma, um, in in the closet of the uh, of the Vatican, I think it's called, or into the closet of the Vatican. Um, it's a I I got it on the Kindle. Uh, uh, was actually quite affordable compared to the hardcover version, and I've been reading that over the past few days. I will give you a, a bit of a review later on in in the book segment, and so this is kind of a two parter, uh, but it it. It's uh, there is a lot to comment on, and then the book is definitely not a, a, a perfect book, 
But there is too much in that book that I believe is credible and that discredits the moral authority of a lot of players in the Vatican, not the entire Vatican. It's not – this is not discrediting the infallibility of the pope you know, in, in, in theological terms. But it shows you that there is much more awry in the Vatican than most of – most Catholics would, would have ever thought was possible. Because of that comp- – of, of that um, uh, compromised – uh, situation of the Vatican, I think we need to bring in external people, external investigation. And so that transparency that which was proclaimed during those days, I think that's one thing to say, to, to call for transparency, but the Vatican should lead the way and they should start. And I hope that we will see that. Um, and and in the Netherlands, from my Dutch perspective, I can only say it is one of the most excruciating things that you can do. It is going to be extremely confrontational. It's also very hurtful, very painful, because a lot of the people that are confronted with the results of that uh, examination are not part of the problem. It was the generations before them, but we are still part of that same church. And we need to bear the consequences of what went wrong in the past. It is part of being you know, a member of the church. Jesus is not going to say, well, eh, I wasn't responsible for all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament. Let's, we'll just, yeah, let's forget about it. Let's turn the page, start a New Testament. And from now on, you know, well, let's forget about it. Yeah, Jesus carried on the cross. He carried the sins, not just of his current generation. He carried the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. And we are called to be like Christ so we should not run away for the consequences of sins that were committed and crimes, let's not just call it sins, crimes committed in, in the past. We should never be afraid for the truth. We should never be ashamed of uh, uh, the, the, the victims and their, uh, what, what, they, what they ask, what they demand, what they cry for. Uh, we should. We should. That that is our concern. Even if we are not always responsible for what happened, but we are responsible for the well-being and for the pastoral care of the victims, and that should always be our. That is why this conference and this meeting was so important. But that that is why it's even more important what the next steps will be. And I, uh, there was one intervention that was also stunning, actually two, two women that spoke in the, on the last day and the third day of the conference. A Nigerian sister, she made it very clear that this is not just a Western problem. And I, that, I've heard that so often, even by African bishops, you know, or, or, or from cardinals that said, well, this is such a Western problem. We don't have that type of problems in Africa. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. This is also a massive problem in Africa. Not just um, homosexual abuse. One of what I've heard from several people that work in African countries is the biggest problem there is promiscuity of the priests when it comes to they, they will have women, sometimes even multiple ones. They will have children. And at the same time, they're bishops, they're cardinals, and it's... Like that, and there's a lot of abuse 
happening in those countries as well, perhaps on a different level and in different forms. But whenever, wherever there is power, there is going to be abuse of power. And it's, it's, a, it's a mirage to think that that doesn't happen, that it only is restricted to certain countries, like, like at the beginning of the crisis, where in Europe, there were bishops and cardinals saying, oh, it's just, a, it's just the United States. Well, no wonder. It's such, a, it's, a, it's such a cesspool of moral depravity. And that's not, that will never happen. That's just, you know, all the wealth in the United States and that. Huh. And now, of course, it's everywhere. And, and so that Nigerian sister, I think, made a very good point that this is a global crisis and we as a global community uh, should, should take this seriously and act. The second intervention was also extremely powerful. This was a Mexican journalist, if I'm not mistaken, female journalist. And she said, uh, to summarize it basically to, the, to all these bishops and cardinals and people and even the Pope that was, was sitting next to her, the, the media, the press will and can help you to uncover the truth. We will stand with you to separate facts from fiction and rumors from, from proven, proven facts. We will stand with you when it comes to helping the victims. But we will be your worst enemy if you try to cover things up in the future. If we get if we sense that you're not taking this seriously enough, that you're not defending the victims, that you're not doing what you're supposed to do, we as, as journalists, we are the warriors for the truth and for the dignity of, of, of the people on this planet and we will be your worst enemy. And I was like, that is what we need to hear right now. Enough of, of the discredit of, of, of Catholics and, and bishops and priests discrediting the press. The press is difficult to handle because they are a mirror and they confront us. And of course, a journalist, every journalist is fallible. They can make mistakes. They, 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 they have their personal opinions that sometimes interfere with their fact-finding mission. But on the whole, the press is our best ally in eradicating everything that goes against the dignity and the truth and, 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 and love and whatever is good in the world. The common good. The press is there for the common good. And we should ally with the press instead of seeing the press as an enemy, as a threat. And I see that time and again, and it frustrates me so much when I hear a bishop or a priest poo-pooing the press. Like, I'm not going to talk to the press is only there to, to discredit the church and to hurt the church. No. There may be individual cases, but on the whole, the press should be at our sides and we should help the press in, in uncovering the truth. And, and that is why the free press, especially when they say things we don't want to hear, is so important. And we should thank them for that. And we should help Catholic journalists and journalists in general to find those facts and to help us uncover the truth. And the moment we start to feel that the truth is inconvenient and we don't want to hear it and we'd rather close the door and say no comment or even worse, even lie to the press because believe it or not, that is happening not just in politics. That's also happening in the church. It's also happening in the Vatican. It's also happening in dioceses. The moment we do that, the press rightfully becomes our enemy. And I would say good for them and good for us, if you see what I mean.
All right, I'm getting uh, all, all wound up about this, but this is this is this has been a very very important event in the life of the of the church. It's also, I think, uh, hopefully a, a first step of many steps to follow, and I hope that in these next years there will be one motivating factor that tops everything else, um, and that is the victims need this process. They need to see that the church is truly changing, not just condemning with words, but taking a new direction, changing the structures that made this possible. The cover-up of the crime is just as bad, if not worse, than the crime itself. And There were multiple people that said that during the conference, and it is time for the church, both global on a global level and also on a local level, to acknowledge that. No more cover-ups. No more hiding from the truth. No more easy solutions like, well, we'll put in place some measures and we'll write a few more paragraphs in canon law. That's not enough. There are structures of evil at work here. And Pope Francis even dared to mention the devil in this. He said this is, this is actually also supernatural. There is the extent of the evil, the, the severity, the gravity, the amount of damage is diabolical. And whenever the devil is at play, then you know that there is a structural change that has to be made, a conversion. That is, conversion is structural change. It's not just words. It's not just empty gestures. But it's real, lasting change. Which brings me to the book segment. Let's talk about books and about Martel's book. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. Packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? So I'm at one-third, literally 33% of Martel's book, uh, Into the Closet of the Vatican. What do I think of it? I've already mentioned it very briefly on on this week's episode of The Walk, but I want to give you a little bit more of my thoughts here. Um, First of all... uh, I, I've been a bit shocked by some of some of some Catholic reviewers that uh, are trying to discard this book as being just basically a whole bunch of gossip and exaggerations. I would I would say personally I don't agree with that assessment, and I think it is uh, underestimating um, not just the book itself and, and its writer, but also the what the book un, uh, reveals and what it what it uncovers. Um, this is this this book is to be taken very very seriously, and if only half of it, it is also something that other reviewers have said. If only half of this is true, or, or or just a tenth of this is true, then still it would be one of the most shocking things ever revealed about the 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 workings of the Vatican. Um, there are. Let's start with the things that I didn't appreciate, but it's not that important. There are a few chapters in this book that I found were uh, a a bit redundant, perhaps a bit French. Uh, There is a bit of showing off like a whole chapter about Maritain uh, and about, I don't know, every chapter, every once in a while, there are lots of poets and writers. And and, and there is some some kind of vague theory around that. It's all sublimated homosexuality or homo. homo, homo. It's not – he makes a distinction between homosexuals and homophobia. Is that the word? Or or people that are homophile? And he says there were a lot of homophiles in the Vatican, but they don't act. It's it's just who they are. Um, 
but they they but they're not active. Uh, and then there are the homosexuals, but, but that's the group of people that have double lives that are you know, on the one hand, project themselves as being uh, these these ideal you know Catholic priests and bishops or cardinals. On the other hand, their life is anything but Catholic, and they uh, exploit migrants and uh, go pick up uh, prostitutes and everything. Um, the 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 thing is that the the chapters where there's just ongoing talk about you know writers that uh, are basically according to this Martel sub sub kind of homophiles that are sublimating there and it's, uh, just drones on and on and it's not re- very relevant to the entire topic at least for what I've read so that is a bit French I'd say but then there are a number of cha- uh, chapters that are I think very much based on facts. Uh, not always quantitative, quantitative fact. And uh, Martel, of course, in, to to sell the book, he um, he he's been uh, t- uh, saying everywhere. Well, the the huge majority of the people that work in the Vatican uh, consists of homosexuals or homo- homo- homophile people. Um, but it's actually, if you read it carefully, it's something that one of of the, his interviewees says, and he. It's like I think that could be true. So it's that is not based on fact finding. That is certainly not based on, on sociological research. However, what is much more important of this book is the quality qualitative approach. So he does in depth interviews with a number of people. He also mentions a number of people, so we know who he talked with, and um, those accounts. Sometimes multiple times with the same person. Those those accounts, I think, are very much literal, are very very um, trustworthy. Um, that's trustworthy information. I think he he uh, manages to write it in such a way that you believe that. Well, that's probably what they talked about. Um, the thing is, he he puts all the information together, and then you start to see the structures behind it. You start to get an idea. Now, there is also definitely an ideological aspect to his writing. Uh, Martel is a um, openly gay, and um, he's not a Catholic. He's not religious, but but he he wants to make a point. What I appreciate is that he says right from the get go, "I'm not here to, you know." reveal the who are the people that are li- living this double life but i want to expose the structure of of duplicity of of hypocrisy because that is what pope francis has mentioned time and again it's the hypocrisy of people that are on the one hand super harsh uh and have very uh, i would say not or, perhaps not orthodox as, as well as more more conservative attitudes but in their own private lives, do exactly the opposite. His thesis also, it's I think one of his interviewees that, that, that puts that forward, is that the more someone is openly uh, railing against homosexuality and gays, the more probably he struggles with that. That is, I mean, it's a sweeping statement, and it's, I think, definitely true in a number of cases, but I wouldn't say that is a that you can generalize it like that. However, uh, and and I've said this before. I've said I've also mentioned this in in my episode of the walk last week. I lived for more than two years in Rome. I observed behavior. I saw things with my own eyes. I heard stories with my own ears. Um, not just hearsay, from reliable sources. 
that confirm what I read in Martell. And also the, the other way around, Martell describes a number of things. And in hindsight, when I look back on things that I saw with my own eyes and experienced in Rome, I'm thinking, so that was what was going on. And it makes sense. It falls, it, 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 the, the pieces of the puzzle fit and, and make me convinced that there is absolutely a, a real problem in the Vatican. And the problem is not the gaze. Uh, to kind of, uh, uh, I apologize in advance if I sometimes I'm uh, my wording is not is not respectful enough or whatever. But I'm I'm trying to to explain um, how I how I, how I feel about this book and and why it is important. Um, the problem is not that in the Vatican there is a large majority of people that um, are have a same-sex attraction. Let's put it that way. It's probably a much better way to, to say it than uh, the whole the hom- homo- homophilia and uh, it's a bit French. <laughs> but uh, um, that have same-sex attraction. That, there, there is, that is, you can be a very holy person while also having those tendencies uh, or have that predisposition or have whatever you want. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist or psych, uh, psychologist. There, there is, there is a, that's an entire different area where I think the church should enter in discussion with psychology and with also with people um, that have, that, that live have same-sex attraction in that respect. Pope Francis is, uh, I think, sets a good example in inviting people to talk with him and to. Uh, he has been hosting uh, uh, transgenders and uh, lesbian people and homosexual couples and talked with them and, and listened. That's the first thing he needs to do. Is first, let's start with listening and respect people, um, no matter what what life choices they've made, because respect is due to the fact that that. Is also a child of God, so this non-judgmental listening attitude is, 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 I think, the way forward. So, but the real problem is that a lot of the people um, that's, that that um, have the same-sex attraction struggle with this, and it's a struggle that hasn't been resolved. There is there is a struggle that leads some to take very frustrated positions that to hurt other people, to build walls around that struggle, to protect them, also to protect them from uh, being uh, judged, uh, to, to be the, the victim of, of uh, exclusion. Or even worse, that struggle, that unresolved struggle leads to depression, to a very deep, profound unhappiness that then wants to be compensated. We, you know, the, the priests are and bishops are just like any other people. We try to numb the pain. We try to compensate for loneliness. We, uh, th- and, and then you get behavior that it's a, it's a kind of a, how would you say that, a, a gliding scale? A, a, like it, it may start with one transgression, which is easily confessed and pardoned, and then it gets worse. And if the more people are, are um, uh, justifying behavior for themselves, the riskier it gets. And so, um, and then it leads to phenomena that are described by Martel, which I also 
this is not science fiction, people. This is this is happening, and I've seen it happening, of priests taking their car, going to Termini Station, and pick up young boys. Well, most of them, hopefully, are consenting adults, but still, and bring them to their private quarters or to a hotel. And and Martel, this uh, t- he's been talking with these guys, and I I know a lot of these uh, victims of of prostitution. Because I lived there in Rome. I know Termini Station. You see them uh, looking for customers. I've talked with them. I've, they've been asking me for money and for, for a cigarette, which is kind of like the, the, the secret code. There are a lot, there's a lot of that stuff. And I, that I, even when I was in Rome already, was, people explained that to me. That, that's code four. And I was super naive. Of course, I've, I'm still very, very kind of naive in these things. And I, I don't have – so there's uh, – Martel talks about it having people having a gaydar, so to, like a radar for gay people. Uh, well, if, if something like that exists, I don't have it. And I, don't, I, couldn't, I couldn't care less. I don't want to – I want to be co- totally colorblind in that respect. I, for me, what matters is, 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 is someone trying to do what's right. And, and if someone suffers – because of their 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 uh, psychological disposition, if the it also goes beyond just you know people that suffer from same sex attraction or, or even the, the saying that to suffer from that means that that is in itself a problem. Uh, it is a problem when people suffer from it, and 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 that is what we should acknowledge. And so the. The, my main feeling while reading the first third of this book is sadness. Not sadness because people sin and priests do terrible things. Because uh, one, one of the results of this whole structural problem is that inst- they go and find migrants because migrants don't speak Italian and can't, can't and they often have don't have papers. They don't have a permit to stay in, in Europe. And so they won't betray the priest. They won't go to the press because if they do, they get, you know, they'll get deported. So but then, of course, the migrants are a very vulnerable group among the prostitutes. And so you've got, you've got priests working in the Vatican and also visiting priests, also priests that go to Rome for, for sex, basically. Um, you've got priests that are exploiting the most vulnerable people that are homeless and, and most vulnerable migrants. I mean, that's unfathomable. That is horrible. That, that, is, that is such a problem. But on the other hand, the book also explains, and it's usually the, the prostitutes, that, the male prostitutes that he interviews, that, that actually are very forgiving towards those priests and say, well, well but they're just, they're very unhappy. They, they're trying to compensate for something that they can solve. There's a problem in their lives that they can't fix. And so they find they they try to find a temporary solution, and so they they pick us up, and our job is to keep the customer happy, and in this in, and when it comes to priests, is always to keep the to keep the dream alive, to 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 never confront them with the consequences of what of the of the of the hypocrisy of their lives, to let them believe that we are actually their friends and not just paid prostitutes. So we we all there. That entire chapter about prostitution around Station Ter- Termini um, and the amount of priests that are actually uh, uh, looking for 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 a night uh, with with one of them, 
that should be, I think, compulsory reading in seminaries. Because this is about... This, this is a warning what, what a life of loneliness and, and repressed struggle can actually lead to. How much not only the priest is a victim, but also the, the people that he recruits for his unfulfilled desires are victims of that struggle. And the way to tackle it is not punitive. It's not enough to add canon law to, to fix this. The solution is not just confession. There is Yes, there is a moral aspect to this. But the true solution is these people need help, professional help. I think I've already mentioned this in the walk last week that I believe, I firmly believe that the Vatican should make, uh, should appoint helpers, uh, counselors in the Vatican that are completely independent, maybe not even Catholic, but professional counselors that gain the trust of these unhappy priests and bishops and cardinals and help them to, to come to terms with who they are, to come to terms with what they've done. And a confessor cannot always do that. I know that from personal experience. Uh, someone who comes to you and confesses these things, that may be the only time in your life that you see them. And they will sometimes go... Uh, be serial confessors. Uh, um, I would just say that repentance. So they will go from priest to priest because they they cannot face uh, a repeat visit. It is too too hard for them to carry. But that also means that as a confessor, you cannot always accompany them, but because they will come never they will never come back. Of course, they will promise that they will never do it again. But is that is that can they truly believe? Can they truly promise that? Um, so, and that's why I believe that counselors would be very, very helpful in that situation. But that also means a complete change in the way the Vatican functions. I've also last week said that we need to have families in the Vatican. We need to open up high-ranking positions to women and to married men. And the, there is such a high concentration of, of men in the Vatican uh, also from all over the world that have you are not always in control of the kind of formation that they've received. They've grown up in, a, in, a, in an environment that was extremely hostile to same-sex attraction. And so there is a lot of repression, kind of repressed feelings there and problems that have been kind of put on hold. Well, as long as I'm a, a, a priest and I, then prayer is going to solve everything. It's kind of the the same stupid thing that people think. Prayer is not solving anything if you're not ready to act when God asks you to make changes and to face your problems. Confession is all about honesty, but honesty also requires action. And if there is no change, if, if you're, you're, you don't want to, I mean, if, I, if, if someone comes to me as a hypothetical, it says, I've, I have a habit of murdering people. I'm, again, I'm not equating same-sex attraction with murderers. Let's put that, make that clear. But if someone confesses a very grave sin, but at the same time says, well, I'm confessing this right now. Please forgive me, and I'm so sorry. And I don't, as a confessor, tell that person to go seek help, professional help. Then forgiveness is not going to solve anything. 
it's not going to save that person. And so that is why confession is, is only one, is one aspect of what is needed, but it's also professional help because these are problems that are not religious per se. These are, if, if priests and cardinals and bishops suffer from loneliness, suffer from extreme work pressure, suffer from never having been able to talk about this, even during seminary, because, well, if you look at the current regulations, then if, if someone has same-sex attraction, um, uh, should not even be ordained or admitted to, to the priesthood uh, or to seminaries. But the fact is, well, according to Martel and to what I've observed, you may formulate those rules, but that's not... People can totally hide the truth and can totally project an image. And as and 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 if you have these rules in place, and there there is no there's no openness, and you can't discuss this during your formation as a priest, and these problems will come back in full force after ordination, and then they can become even more dangerous. So, those are the structures that this book uncovers. And, I, and puts it on the table for us to discuss and to tackle. And I totally understand that the, the summit in the Vatican wa didn't want to address this particular aspect. Uh, and, 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 and in a certain way, these are different areas of uh, different problematic areas. And they, there is definitely a crossover. But it's also it's a different – but it should be dealt with. This, this book, you cannot say that, oh, it's just gossip. And, uh, well, let's just, let's, let's, let's um, discard this because it's, you know, it's probably, he's exaggerating. He just wants to, to sell his book. No, 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 no. Believe me, I've seen things in Rome that, that are totally, and, and I've probably only seen the tip of the iceberg. There, there is definitely a problem. And what I pray for is healing, is and, and not just, you know, the punishment of those transgressors and those abusers and whatnot. I, I pray for that when people work in the church, be it in the Vatican or locally, that my fellow priests in my diocese, that they are happy, that their life of a priest helps them to be fully human and and helps them to carry the cross sometimes and helps them to to face their struggles and to nobody is called to be ideal the christ is 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 the one who sanctifies us but he takes us with our problems and he but he wants us to 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 find a future with that this you know no, there is no problem that we cannot face and also deal with i'm not sure it's never some some things can never go away entirely but we are called to be to be with christ in all those situations and 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 martel describes a number of priests and bishops that are turning away that are hiding part of their lives from the truth from christ who is the truth and that is that is the, the the real crisis. That is a true drama, and when pe when you get that kind of dysfunctionality, um, then that will have consequences in the way people act, the way people talk. I've often wondered sometimes when I heard priests in Sunday mass, 
and their homily would be as flat as paper. And it, it they would drone on, and, you, and, and I was like listening, and it's like, where is your love? Where is your passion? There is no life left in this person. And if you, if you read these stories and you put these things together, then how can you preach? How can you share your faith if part of your life is, is, is isolated from that faith? That when you're partially dead inside because you're leading a double life, how, how can you be, how can you evangelize if the gospel has not taken root in your own heart and in your own life, in your own actions? That's a tragedy. That is so sad. And I feel so sorry for, for, for people in that situation. Wow. Okay. That's how I feel. <laughs> it's, uh, I've been going on for way too long. I apologize. This is such a long episode. I just, I just wanted to share how I feel about this. And I invite you to to pray with me for, for this and, and, and think about this. This is important. And it's not just something that is in, happening in the church. There's, there's a lot of unhappy people out there and perhaps you're one of them. We need to support each other. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Take care and God bless.